If you have your Bibles, turn to to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're actually going to go all the way from chapter 2 into chapter 3. So 2.13 through 3.6. So it's going to be our, our passage this morning. At the outset, I want to start. I want to start with a question. Have you ever had an enemy? Have you ever had an enemy? Have you ever really hated anyone? I mean, like hated someone. I mean, it was a movie character. I, I often think of William Tavington, who was one of the, the antagonists from the movie The Patriot, the, the cruel, cruel man, if you're familiar with that movie, who apparently was loosely based off a, a real-life character from, from that war, Bannister Tarleton. So any history buffs, you might be familiar with that. But, but that man was evil. And, and every time I watch it, I, I feel this, this hatred coming up. Or, or maybe it's a political figure, uh, a celebrity. Maybe, maybe there's someone that, that you, just, you just can't stand. Have, have you ever helped, felt hate towards someone? Or another angle uh, to the same question is, has anyone ever really hated you? Has anyone ever been your enemy? I mean, really hated you. And if so, was there hatred? Was, was there anger? Was it, was it justified? Maybe you had done something to them. Maybe, maybe there was an event that happened and, and it created this, this tension. Well, if you're in, in either one of those cases... Uh, you can relate with, with some of the main characters in, in today's passage, because what we're going to see is we're going to see this hate rise in our passage this morning. Uh, we're we're going to see, we started last week that there was a hint of this. Remember, if you're with us, Jesus healed the, the paralytic man, and they said, he's committing blasphemy, he's doing what only God can do, and so there's this tension starts to rise. That was, that was kind of incident number one. Well, this morning we're going to see four more incidents where this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees just rises and rises. And at the end of our passage, in in verse 6 of chapter 3, we see that the Pharisees, they they go out and they're plotting a way to destroy Jesus. So so they hate this man. And so what what, what I want us to consider is, well, why do they hate him so much? What is it about what happens in in our passage in these, these four circumstances? What is it that happens that causes them to hate him. I mean, think about what Jesus has done so far in, in the gospel account. He, he's taught and he's preached the kingdom. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. And he claimed, claimed authority to forgive sins and improve that authority, which, which created some stir. But, but really, he hadn't done much to be hated for. Uh, but in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus begins challenging some of, some of this, this religious group's long-held traditions and practices. He begins poking it at what they hold dear, and that begins to hit a nerve with them. And so let's read our passage. You should be there by now, but, but Mark chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, so you can follow along as I read. He went out again, that's Jesus, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, that is Levi, rose and followed him. Verse 15, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and they said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but, but your disciples, they don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Verse 23, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, and, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it's not lawful for any but priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1, And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, that is, the Pharisees, Is it lawful in the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so in each section, I've broken this down into, into three pretty basic sections. And in each section, Jesus does something that, that the Pharisees don't like, that, and it irks them. And so we're just going to walk through section by section to see what it is that Jesus does and why, at the end of the day, they, they want to kill him. So the first section, if, if you're taking notes, is, is verses 13 through 17, and it's Jesus calls sinners. So Jesus is eating and dining with sinners, and they don't like that. Then second, Jesus' disciples, they don't fast in verses 18 through 22, and they don't like that. Why aren't they fasting? And then lastly, the, the kind of two final stories or, illustrate, or occurrences, Jesus and the Sabbath. So he clarifies the Sabbath, or he interprets the Sabbath for them, and that's verses 23 through 6 of chapter 3. So, let's, let's move. It's not going to take as long as you may think, okay? We, we, I've practiced this, and we're going to get through this. Uh, but, but let's first look at verses 13 through 17. Notice Jesus calls sinners. So it, our story picks up right where it left off last week. So he had just amazed the crowd with the healing of the paralytic. And, and so then it says Jesus retreats out beside the sea, probably for, for a rest. He's been overwhelmed. He's done ministry. Now he's probably out for a rest. But there he can't find rest because there Mark says that the crowd goes out to him. So no rest for the worry. But Jesus, when the crowd comes, says he, he taught them. So that's what he did. He started teaching them. And this, then verse 14 as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And so again, this is, this is reminiscent of, of what we saw back in chapter 1. Do you remember the two sets of brothers? Jesus passes by, he says, follow me, and they leave everything and they follow him. So this, this is another occurrence where, where Levi is in his tax booth. Jesus walks by, says, follow me, and Levi comes. So there's nothing too much out of the ordinary um, with this calling of Levi. Just on a side note, maybe if you have a study Bible, if you have footnotes, Levi 
Uh, that name is never mentioned again in the New Testament other than here and then in Luke's parallel account. And so people say, well, who is Levi? Uh, some, people, some people say, well, he's just a random guy that, that appeared and was gone, which maybe that's true. But, but most people, and I tend to agree, would say that Levi is actually Matthew, the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And in fact, in Matthew's account of this same exact story of what happens, the, the man in the tax booth is named Matthew. Okay, so that, that's, I think, pretty uh, probable reason for, for thinking this is Matthew. Nevertheless, this calling of this one isn't really different. He passes, he calls, they follow. But what is different, what is different is the person being called. Levi is different from the others that have been called. Levi's not a fisherman. Do you know what he is? Do you, do you see in, there in the passage what, what he's doing? He's in the tax booth. He's a tax collector. He's a tax collector. You've probably heard stories about, about what tax collectors do. Let me, here, here's a quote from, from a, a man named Leon Morris. So, so listen to how, how he describes what, what happens because we don't have tax collectors really now. I guess maybe the IRS could qualify, but it's different. Listen to how the, the system worked. He says, quote, The Romans, they taxed people by farming out the taxing rights to the highest bidder. So, so the successful man or the highest bidder, who, was, who would have been Jewish, would pay Rome the amount that he bid. But he would collect more than that to pay expenses and to give him le- legitimate profit. But it was a strong temptation to levy more tax than was strictly necessary and, he, and to pocket the extra. So this provoked resentment, especially among the patriotic, who, did, who in any case did not like to see Jews helping Romans by collecting taxes. And so a vicious cycle developed. The more they overtaxed, the more they were hated. And the more they were hated, the more they were overtaxed. And so Rome says, okay, here's this region of Jews and we need, we need their money. And so they have this auction, and all the wealthy Jews, they go and say, well, I'll pay this much for this region. Highest bidder gets it. So he bids 100, 100 pieces of money. And then, then he comes back to his region. He says, okay, I've got to make $100. Everyone come pay your taxes. He can charge whatever he wants. He's going to get at least $100 back, or 100 pieces of, of money back, but he can go far above and beyond it and take advantage of them, because who's backing him? Rome is backing him. They don't, they don't have any recourse, so he can say, I'm going to charge you 100 a person. And then he gets wealthy and rich. So this is the nature of tax collectors. They were dishonest men who took advantage of their own people. Their own people, they're on the same team, and they're extorting money from them for their own benefits. So they were, they were despised, they were hated. And so that's Levi. He's a tax collector. He is a sinner. That's what he does. And so this man Levi, he's different. He's probably the most wealthy disciple He's a wealthy man, probably the most despised disciple prior to, to following Jesus. But, but yet, here we have Jesus calling Levi to follow him. Now, I, I almost wish that we would see the faces of the other disciples when, when they stop at the tax booth and Jesus starts talking to him. And then they hear him say, follow me. Are you, are you sure? Is this, are you sure this is the man you want to follow us? We don't, we don't have their reaction recorded, but we do have recorded what happens next. And that's when the Pharisees get involved. So look at verse 15. So Jesus calls Levi, uh, and, and Levi throws a party, a banquet at his house, a celebration for Jesus and his disciples. And, and so he's invited all his friends, his house is full, in verse 15, and he, that is Jesus, reclined at Levi's table in the house. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Okay, so there we are. So far, so good. That party back at Levi's house, Jesus is there, his disciples are there. But then comes the conflict. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so 
the, the scribes of the Pharisees, they take issue with what's happening there. Now, their issue isn't that Jesus is at a banquet or at a party. That's not their issue, but their issue is who's at the party with Jesus. Okay, so it's who's there in that house. That's what they take issue with. You see, the Pharisees didn't like people like Levi. They were sinners. They were outcasts. That was their reputation. In fact, tax collectors were excluded from, from even entering the temple. They were, they were unclean. They were traitors. And, and so for Jesus to, to go to a house and to dine and to share food with these types of people was unacceptable to the Pharisees. That just didn't happen, especially a rabbi. Especially a rabbi. Meals were important social rituals in the ancient world, and one would normally eat only with those of similar social status. In Judaism, a scrupulous, scrupulous Pharisee would never eat at the home of a common Israelite He would especially not eat with a defiled and sinful tax collector. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus isn't keeping in line with with what they expect, with with how rabbis, with how religious leaders are supposed to act. And I'm going to argue that Jesus, this is not just a a polite acceptance of an invitation. Jesus, by going here to Levi's house and dining with these people, is making a theological statement. He's putting his flag in the ground, and this flag is about the nature of the kingdom of God, what it's about, and, and who is included. He'd come to proclaim the kingdom, and, and things were going to be different in this kingdom. It wasn't going to be like the Pharisees' kingdom. He wasn't just another rabbi. He wasn't just one of their peers to be scrutinized so they could sit back and say, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? No, he was the Messiah who had come to establish the kingdom of God. And so at the outset, Mark in his gospel is making clear what type of person is included in the kingdom. And it's not who people thought it would be. Look at verse 17. Notice Jesus' response to justify what he's doing. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, I came to call sinners, Jesus says. So according to Jesus, the coming of the kingdom marks a a great reversal. He he flips the script. It's it's not the righteous who are called. It's it's not the Pharisees who have this monopoly on knowing God. It's it's not the self-righteous who are in, but rather those who are invited, those who are called, those who are accepted are the sinners, the outcasts, the down and outs, the, the even unrighteous. Those are the ones who are brought in. Those are the ones that Jesus came to call. The fact that Jesus dined with sinners and tax collectors indicates that that sinners are being invited to experience the forgiveness of sins and to participate in the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to call those who would never be considered eligible. He comes to call the sick. And so he dines with Levi and his tax collecting friends because, because these are the sick people, and these are the sick people who know they're sick. Now, we had to be careful. There are, there are sinners and tax collectors who are sick, but Jesus isn't justifying the Pharisees as if they're not sick. They're all sick. Pharisees are just as sick, if not even more sick, than the tax collectors. But these people know they're sick. The Pharisees have no clue. And they're self-righteous. And Jesus says, it's, I didn't come to call you. If you think you're righteous, you don't see a need for me. Both are sinners. Jesus came to call both, but, but here he is dining with those who know their need. Jesus came to call those who are sick, those that know they need a doctor. And that's good news for both groups. It's good news for both groups. And so I'm going to stop here and make one application, very, very basic application. Do you know that Jesus came to call sinners? 
Let me word it, let me emphasize it differently. Do you know that Jesus came to call sinners? I mean, this is, this is an explicit statement of why Jesus came to the earth to die on the cross. This is why he came. He came for sinners. If you're here not a Christian, can I tell you, Jesus came to call the broken and the messed up, the sick, those who can't seem to get it all together, people like Levi and people like me and people like you. Jesus came to call sinners. I remember a, a specific conversation I had with, with one individual he was, he was all, all in. He wanted to trust Christ. He wanted to become a Christian. But his, his one hang-up was he was convinced that he had to fix himself before he became a Christian. He thought, I, I just can't do it. i got, I got to get to this level, and then I'll make a decision. So I won't let Jesus down. I won't let you down. And he thought, there's a standard he had to reach before following Christ. Well, I could confidently tell him, Jesus came to call sinners, not those who fix themselves. He came to call sinners Robert Munger, here's a great quote. The church is the only fellowship in the world where one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. That's your ticket in, that you don't belong. You're not bad enough. You're not too bad, non-Christian. Jesus died to save you. You can't disqualify, disqualify yourself. There's a great hymn, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. It's never going to happen. Don't let your conscience prevent you. I'm too bad. But instead, here's how the, the verse continues. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. So if you're here this morning, do you feel convicted of your sin? Do you feel like, I, I, I have a problem, I, I need help? Well, can I tell you, Jesus died for sinners. Trust in him, turn from your sins and trust in Christ this morning. That's my plea to you. But the other group of people here, the fact that Jesus calls sinners, it's not just good news for non-Christians. If you're here and you're a Christian, it's good news that Jesus died for sinners. One of my favorite verses, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Christ, he says, he's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was the foremost. I am the foremost. And so here's the Apostle Paul, who still, however he works it out, he considers himself the foremost of sinners. The fact that Jesus calls sinners is good news for me. I've been a Christian a long time, and it's good news that Jesus came for sinners. The truth that Jesus sustains the Christian by his death on the cross. That's why the Lord's Supper should always do something in us. It should encourage us spiritually because we have a sacrifice that paid for our sins. Being a Christian isn't fundamentally about not being a sinner. Being a Christian is fundamentally about trusting the one who came to deal with our sin. Over and over and over, our life should be life of repentance. So it's good news for Christians that Christ came to call sinners. So be encouraged, Christian. Maybe your sin has you discouraged today. Thank God that, that by his providence we, we have seen in physical form his, his body and his blood. Be encouraged this morning. He didn't save you assuming that you'd stop being a sinner. It's not why Jesus saved you. He saved you knowing that your entire earthly life would be marked by struggle with sin and saved you nonetheless. So be encouraged. Jesus died to save sinners. Well, well Mark, Mark's narrative continues without recording the response of the Pharisees in that section, and, and it just keeps flowing. So look there at, at verses 18 through 22. We, we have the second issue, the, the issue of fasting. So religious resistance continues to rise, and this time it's not about what Jesus is doing or, what, or who Jesus is eating with. This time it's about what his disciples are not doing. So there, look in verse 18. 
Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting, and, and the people came. They said to him, why, why are John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fasting, but, but your disciples aren't? Why? And so the issue is, everyone's fasting. All these religious groups are fasting, but your disciples aren't like them. Why is that? And so first, before looking at why that is, let's look at why are these other groups? Why would they be fasting? Because I, I think it's clear that both of these groups are not fasting for the same reasons. So the Pharisees, what we know, I mean, briefly, they're, they're proud, they're self-righteous, their fasting is always public. Okay, they want everyone to know, look at me, I'm fasting today, I'm so religious. And that's, that's probably what's going on. They're fasting this regular pattern. So that's what they're doing. But, but here, John's disciples, they wouldn't be like the Pharisees, would they? Right? We know, well, they're good guys, right? We saw Jesus and John, they're friends, they're on the same team. Well, John's disciples, why are they fasting? Some, some argue it might be because of John's death. Maybe they're mourning the death, which possible, but, but I think more, more than likely, think about John's ministry of, of that of, of repentance and judgment. That was John's, he was a prophet, kind of a doomsday prophet. Repent, for judgment is coming. Turn, every one of you is what John would say. And so I think what's more likely is these men, or these disciples of John, they're, they're fasting in regards to the coming of the kingdom. They're awaiting the day, and they're, they're fasting so that the kingdom, the judgment might, might come. And so there's, this is a gloomy fasting. It's, they're wanting to hasten the coming of the time of redemption. Maybe they didn't get the message of, of who Jesus was and what was going on. Maybe they didn't hear. Maybe the, the email didn't get through to them. Maybe their Wi-Fi was down when, when John said, the ones, he's here! Don't have to wait anymore, but, but these are fasting. And, and so I think in both of these cases, these groups misunderstand the nature of Jesus' ministry. They misunderstand. This isn't a time for fasting. So he gives three brief illustrations, and we'll work through them briefly. But, but first, he uses the guests at a wedding party, verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom's with them? As long as they have the bridegroom, they can't fast. In other words, Jesus is comparing his ministry to that of a, a wedding celebration. And Jesus himself identifies as the bridegroom. And he simply asks, when there's a wedding, is it a time of gloom and despair? Now, maybe some weddings, okay, maybe some, but, but by and large, most weddings are times of rejoicing and celebration. When my daughter gets married, it might be a time of gloom and doom for, for whoever she's marrying, but Jesus is saying the nature of weddings is celebratory. And he's saying it's not a time for fasting the bridegroom is here. They're not fasting because it's not fasting time. The wedding's still going on. Jesus even now knows there, a time's coming when, when the bridegroom's going to be taken. Jesus even at this point knows the day's coming when he's going to be taken. But that's not the time now. And so that's why his disciples aren't fasting. But he continues the second illustration. He says, verse 21, someone's sewing a patch on a torn cloth. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the tear is where is made worse. And so it's pretty straightforward logic. I mean, I assume most of you ladies probably don't need any further explanation. Okay, but for me, I was like, what does that even mean? But here's the logic. If, if you have unshrunk cloth, what's it going to do as it's washed and worn and washed and worn? It's, it's going to shrink. So if you take unshrunk cloth and put it on clothes that are old, that have already shrunk, you, you put the cloth over the hole... Well, one of them is going to shrink, the other's not. And so the, the patch, as it shrinks, is going to make an even bigger hole in the cloth because the new unshrunk doesn't fit with the old. That's his point. This new old distinction, this dynamic is what he's making the point. And so the, he continues to make the, a similar point in verse 23 with the, the third illustration. He just says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
Now, hopefully none of us have experience in this, right? But here's the, here's the nature of, of, of wine. Here's, here's what would happen. The, the, the part of the aging and the fermentation process, when you'd have new wine, there'd be gases and release, and whatever that meant, you'd put new wine in new wineskins because as it fermented, there would be an expansion. So the new wineskins would expand with the new wine. Okay, so you'd save both. The wine wouldn't be wasted. It would ferment and get to right age, and then you could have a wedding feast. But if you take new wine and put an old wineskin that's already expanded, what's the problem? When the new wine starts to expand, the, the old wineskin can't expand with it. It busts, and you lose the wineskin, but more importantly, the wine's wasted also. And so that's, that's his point again. The, his disciples aren't fasting because it's not the nature of his ministry, but, but his, his, what he's done is new. It's, it's not just in relation to the old. He just didn't... His mission wasn't simply to reform or patch up Israel's religion. He didn't come as as another line of the Pharisees. Rather, he comes to inaugurate a new era of salvation, the kingdom of God, which has no categories for thinking in terms of these Pharisees. They don't even understand what's going on. And so I had an application here. I think by way of time, I'll I'll briefly mention it. But the nature of Christ's kingdom... It's a, it's a big deal that, that we live in the time when Christ has come. The kingdom has come. It's here now. It's secure. I realize there's a tension that it's coming fully then. But we live here and now with, with a great hope. We live, the, the coming of Christ has given us great hope. There's a day coming when the Lord's prayer will no longer be necessary, especially the part about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because it won't be necessary because his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven perfectly. That, that's the hope. That's the kingdom fully realized. But right here and now, the coming of Christ has secured our hope. And so, so we live in the wedding feast era more than the fasting era. Christians should be some of the most joyful people in the world. No matter how dark it gets, the hope remains. We've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So hold fast, Christian. Now, now, lastly, let's look at the, the, third, the third section, verses 23 of chapter 2 into chapter 3. The last section, again, this is all related to the Sabbath, okay? And both of them are related to, to what Jesus does on the Sabbath. So, in summary, verses 28 through 23, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a grain field. Okay, they're probably going somewhere to teach or preach, and, and the disciples are hungry. They're walking through a grain field, they're hungry, they see food. They take it, they eat it. It's sustenance, they need energy, they're tired, they're on a mission, doesn't seem like much of a big deal, but, but notice what Mark records when it happened. His one observation that changes everything. It took place on the Sabbath. That changes everything. The Sabbath. Now remember the Sabbath. This, this is grounded if you know your Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. In fact, Jesus in creation, or not Je- God himself in creation, the seventh day he rests. So, so the Sabbath is a huge deal for the Israelites. It's a huge deal for the Pharisees, and rightly so. But the problem to come with the Pharisees, how they defined what rest meant. So they said, okay, you've got to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, you can't work on the Sabbath. Now what the Pharisees had done is they had built this whole structure of laws, this elaborate plan of what they, people could not do on the Sabbath. It was complex. And in fact, one, one, one later rabbinic teaching said that there were 39 specific things that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Things like you couldn't walk more than... 2.3 miles. You could walk 2.2, it wouldn't be work. But once you cross that third, you had broken the Sabbath. So they had all these complex laws. 
And so when the disciples pluck this grain to eat, that's reaping. They're guilty of, they're working on the Sabbath according to the Pharisees. So that's their issue. So that's why in verse 24, why are they doing, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? That's their question. They're, they're lawbreakers, those followers of Jesus. Why are they doing that? And so Jesus' response, it, it seems somewhat irrelevant. He says, don't, don't you remember David? King David on the run, when, when he's running from King Saul, he's not king yet. Well, he is king, but he's not king. But he's running from Saul, and Saul's chasing him, and he's got these young men, and they're hungry. Just like disciples, they, they need food. They stop by the, the temple and the high priest there. They need bread. And the only bread there is the bread of the presence, which that's sacred, holy bread. No one can have that bread except for the priest. But yet David takes the bread of presence and gives it to those who are with him. The sacred bread is violated. And so it seems like Jesus is saying, well, David did it, so can I. Which, that's, to some extent, that's what he's saying. But, I mean, here's the reasoning behind that. When there's human need, Sabbath regulation shouldn't prevent that human need from being met. If someone's hungry and there's food available, no law or regulation should prohibit them from having the food they need. That's, I think, what it, what's behind. The Sabbath was, was made for man. It was made to benefit man, and you've made all these rules where it's prohibiting men from benefiting. But then notice verse 28. It, it takes a whole nother level when Jesus continues. He said, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus assumes authority over the Sabbath. Jesus, a command given by the Lord himself to the Israelites, is now being challenged by Jesus. And not challenged in the, in the sense that he's contradicting it, but challenged in the sense that, that he's interpreting it correctly. He's untangling it from all these, these burdens that the Pharisees have put around it. And so Jesus, by claiming to be Lord even of the Sabbath, he's claiming a, an authority that, that belongs to God alone. He's, pre, he's presenting himself as free to judge how to employ these divine laws. I, I can interpret them authoritatively, is in essence what Jesus is saying, which leads to the final passage in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, again, like this previous connected to the Sabbath, Jesus does something on the Sabbath that the Pharisees don't like. And in, in fact, they condemn as breaking the Sabbath. So look what he does. He enters the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. And, and they, so Jesus walks in, there's a withered-handed man, okay, a disabled man who, who has this physical ailment. And they're watching Jesus, verse 2, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they're not just watching to see, what's, what's he going to do? Okay, he did it. No, they're watching so that if he does what they think he might, they can accuse him of being a lawbreaker. So Jesus says to the man, verse 3, come here, come here. So here comes the man, and standing, I assume there's a group of Pharisees, and there's the man with the withered hand, and here's Jesus. And he says to them, not to the man with the withered hand, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And so here's the Pharisees waiting to see if Jesus is going to heal them. And if their minds, if he does, they're going to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And he asks them a question. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Pretty simple. Is it legal to do good on the Sabbath? Or is it legal to do harm on the Sabbath? The answer, the right answer would be to do good, right? It should be okay to do good on the Sabbath. It would be good. So in this context, so, so these men are, are thinking, well, how should we answer this question? Seeing the man with the withered hand, knowing who Jesus is, thinking, well, if we say yes, and he's going to heal him, and then we lose our, our ground to condemn him or accuse him. And so, of course, it'd be good for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath. 
He had a withered hand. He had been disabled probably his entire life. It'd be good. It'd be an act of love and compassion for Jesus to heal this man. If Jesus wanted to hurt this man and harm him, well, well, then you could bring a charge against him. But to do good, are you going to bring a charge against him? And he continues the question by adding, not only is it good or is it legal to do good or to do harm, but he continues, is it lawful to save a life or to kill a life? So, so he elevates it. This is the lesser to greater. Having just established it's okay to do good, it certainly would be okay to save a life on the Sabbath, right? It, uh, they would agree with that, even the Pharisees. But the other side is where he's going. If, it, if, it's not, if, it's, if it's wrong to harm someone on the Sabbath, then certainly it's wrong to kill someone on the Sabbath. Do you see that? That's how he, it's okay to save a life. It's, it's absolutely wrong to kill someone on the Sabbath. And so the irony of this whole interchange, maybe you've, you've seen it so far, it's clear in, verse of light, in light of verse 6. The Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. You see? While Jesus is in the synagogue doing good, wanting to heal this man and, in a sense, save his life, the religious leaders are plotting his death. And so as readers, we ask ourselves, well, what is the real violation of the Sabbath here? Who's keeping the Sabbath and who's not? And so Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing their desire to accuse him, he's, he's angry. He knows their hardness of hearts, their, their blindness to, to see what's going on. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Mark records he stretched it out and the hand was restored. The hand was healed. And so the withered hand is no match for the command of Jesus. And the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And so that's how the, that's how the passage ends with this tension. This group plotting to kill on the Sabbath this man who's doing good on the Sabbath. And so just in closing... Last application, the authority of Jesus. Again, I, th- I think we made the point, his authority over the Sabbath. The Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. That's, that's powerful. And, and again, we see his word heals. That's power. But as we close, let me, let me just close with this, this final thought. As, as we back out, and this, this will bring our whole, our whole time together to an end, but, but the big picture, we zoom out on, on the life of, of Jesus and his ministry especially as we, as we see this resistance, it's, it's hard for us, in fact, it's impossible for us to read these stories apart from where the story's going. In other words, we read this conflict, and we know how the life of Jesus is going to end. So we're reading this opposition, we know it's going to lead to Jesus being crucified. But we know that Jesus isn't caught off guard by this. Even here, he knows the, the bridegroom's going to be taken away. That time's coming. Jesus goes into this knowing what's on the end of the road. But he willingly endures opposition and conflict for the sake of the mission that he was on to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. And so, so let me close with, with Isaiah 53, 7, what we heard earlier. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Brother, sister, that, that's, that's your Messiah. That's your Savior. Let's pray.